I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. from Salt Lake City. This is Heart of the Matter, where Jesus comes first and everything else is up to discussion. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We got through the month of September. October 1st came last week. By God's mercy, just like we've gotten through uh, uh, the past 100 and 500 and 1,700 years, and we will continue to live on through His mercy. We had a really nice time at our party that we called, Thank God Jesus Didn't Come Back and Destroy Us. We had baptisms that night, and that's always a highlight in any type of gathering uh, that we do is if we're able to do baptisms. And uh, Cassidy gave us some insights into baptism through her film, and let's take a look at it. Baptism primarily is an identification. And the moment that you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of believers. Now, water can't do that for you. Only the Holy Spirit can put you into the body of believers. Therefore, every Christian the moment he's trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit regenerates him, and he indwells him, and he seals him, and he also baptizes him. We used to, uh, this crowd is unruly. Uh, we used to uh, do something called Heart in the Park. We did uh, a number of them and uh, have baptized hundreds of people over the course of the years. And uh, people who sought to publicly identify with Christ Jesus. Last Friday, we toned it down to uh, Heart in the Parking Lot. <laughs> and uh, instead of dozens and dozens of baptisms, we had three. But they were just as meaningful, and it was a just as beautiful of an event. We thank everybody who was there and attended and helped, and uh, particularly Diana, Adam, and Max, grateful for your, uh, the spirit of the baptism and wonderful thing. You know, as we continue to talk about the elements of modern religion, I was reminded of the unoriginal fact 
that when it comes to institutions and groups and businesses, even civil servants uh, and their organizations, all of them have to morph and change. They have to adapt in order to survive. It's like institutional survival. The only exception to this seems to be private clubs like Skull and Bones. And uh, hopefully it would be true of Christianity, true Christianity, that it doesn't need to adapt, that it simply is what it is. But you remember, some of you might remember a chain of uh, do-it-yourself stores called National Lumber. Uh, they aren't around anymore uh, because they didn't adapt. And this little company called Home Depot came in out of Georgia and swallowed them up. You remember Tom McCann's shoe stores, they're gone. Drug Emporium, Rexall, The Warehouse, Linen and Things, gone baby, gone. They're all gone. Adaptation, improvement, material upgrades are the name of the game in the corporate and institutional world. When I was a teenager, in my er on into my early 20s, I lifeguarded at Huntington State Beach in California. And lifeguarding in the 1930s to up through the 1980s was, shall we say, a very unique environment. Uh, and I was fortunate to enter into it in its last decade of that uniqueness. And uh, larger than life, wild, rustic, very adventurous situation in ocean lifeguarding. And we were like a crop of sun-baked, salty brothers who watched over the coast by day and uh, just did insane, dangerous things as a group by night. And then when the sun came, we're ready to go again and watch over the coast. I left guarding in the early 1980s to attend school and get married and stuff. But in the summer of 1996, I went back for one summer. I was in my 30s. And uh, when I did, I discovered that the entire system had changed. The whole thing. What happened? 50 years of old school lifeguarding had been replaced by a new regime of these professional lifesaver guys. And they enforced and they managed and they implemented uh, this new way of doing it. And they were the regime that oversaw it. And I remember that on my first day back to a tower there on the beach, and uh, I was watching a potential rescue going on, a girl going into a rip current. And I had my buoy in hand and my, my fins in the hand. I was watching to see if I should go. And a Jeep, the lifeguard Jeep pulled up. A guy named Al was driving. And he jumped up and he held his hand to my face. He said, McCraney, hold. And, and then the passenger uh, put binoculars up to his eyes. And the driver, Al, said, visual? And then the, the passenger said, insights. And, and then uh, he kept watching and he said, code four, which is code for everything's OK. And I was in my inside, I was just laughing inside at the spectacle uh, because the actions were truly unnecessary. They were absolutely superfluous. And they were, they were men making a show of something that for 50 years was handled by dudes who were sitting up watching and would grab their fins, go help, bring them in, and you know that would be it. It had now become this bureaucratic production, including the paperwork that went along with it and the qualifications. See Northcote Parkinson, he's a naval historian, and he's an author of a book that I read years ago, Parkinson's Law, AKA The Pursuit of Progress. Really good book. He gives stunning insights into this type of thinking. Some of his quotes include, the man whose life is devoted to paperwork has lost the initiative. He is dealing with things that are brought to his notice, having ceased to notice anything for himself. He also said, work expands 
so as to fill the time available for its completion. And then he did a great one. He says that this isn't a direct quote, but he said, the time a group will spend on a certain issue is inversely related to the complexity of the issue involved. In other words, a group will spend hours on something ridiculously simple and they'll spend, they'll spend no time at all on something that's very complex. And see, Northcote Parkinson says the reason is people in groups don't want to look stupid. And so they try to skirt the difficult stuff quickly, and, but when it's something that everybody can understand, they'll chew on it for, for years, you know. Well, apparently in the lifeguarding world, a group of like-minded guys looked around and they saw that they could take this once kind of thriving avocation and incorporate a bunch of manuals and codes and advanced and demanded training seminars to turn lifeguarding, ocean lifeguarding into a profession. And listen closely from my observations, having seen lifeguarding before and then what it became after, it was a certain type of guy and girl who took the former job and formed it into their own image. And by raising the bar, they call it, we've raised the bar on, on things, uh, they were able to assume control, they were able to ensure their own survival by strategically putting their ways in as accepted policy and thereby causing everybody who came into lifeguarding to either conform or be cast out. And what was this people type? In the case of lifeguarding, they were men and women who had uh, an image of passion, but not passion itself. There's a difference. The, I forget who said it, but people love the image of passion, but not passion itself. Uh, they were guys who adored discipline and lines of authority and uniforms and order and clipped hair. And they were linear thinkers uh, and who had a real penchant for administration. And within a decade, Ocean Lifeguarding shifted from its former freewheeling system of protecting beach visitors to a semi-militaristic enterprise with titles and haircut qualifications, and uh, worst of all, a demand to play by these new rules. Now, I'm sure as a result of their efforts, lifeguarding became better paying, and it became, uh, uh, they, bec they started receiving benefits, I'm sure. I'm sure they have now received enough training to negotiate the release and care of a hostage with arterial bleeding during a hurricane. I mean, but how do I say this? The love is gone. Um, replaced by endless grappling for power. And uh, the Band of Brothers era has been destroyed by allegiance to the corporation, to the system, by wanting to climb up the ladder, by getting to the top. Listen, I understand the need for changes in the lifeguarding world. Um, the freewheeling days of or uh, your would have subjected the state to innumerable lawsuits in our day and age. So change, sad as it was, is necessary in civil servants and in corporations and things to continually evolve. You become like national lumber. But when such changes occur within the body, when this stuff, when the body gets uh, surreptitiously overcome by certain mindsets of these guys and they say this is what Christianity now is and, and this is how it goes. It's really, really disturbing. I remember years ago 
uh, my hair was long and wild, and I decided, because I do this on a whim, to just cut it all off. And somebody I was working with in ministry when I came in, he almost had tears. He said, now you look like a pastor. And, and I was never more disappointed in getting my hair cut in my life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from him, describes the age of admin. That's what he calls it in which he lives. And he says, I like bats much better than bureaucrats. I live in the managerial age in a world of admin. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we find the final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth, shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the offices of a thoroughly nasty business concern. It's an official society held together entirely by fear and greed. On the surface, manners are normally suave. Rudeness to one's superiors would obviously be suicidal. Rudeness to one's equal might put them on their guard before you are ready to spring your mine. For, of course, dog eat dog is the principle of the whole organization. Everyone wishes for everyone else's discrediting, demotion, and ruin. Everyone is an expert in the confidential report, in the pretended alliance, in the stab in the back. Over all, their, over all this, their good manners, their expressions of grave respect, their tributes to one another's invaluable service form a thin crust. Every now and then it gets punctured and the scalding lava of their hatred spurts out." End quote. Why tell this whole thing on here on Heart of the Matter? Because the metamorphosis of organized Christian religion has not been one bit different. Where such ugliness is expected and warranted in corporate life, even in civil services, in my estimation, such bureaucracies no longer, no, they don't belong in the body here today any more than they belong in heaven later. If heaven is gonna be like that, like we run and organize and operate our churches, I'm not sure I want to go there. I mean, to me, that would be a form of hell. What about people who accept everybody who's coming in and, and loving people and accepting them as they are and, you know, trying to love the Lord? What about that? So it used to be people who loved the Lord just got together out of him and, and you know, they, 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 uh, they, they allowed uneducated lovers of the word to teach. And... Uh, Patience was at work, and that was the apostolic age. But men like those lifeguard guys have taken it over, and they, have, they look like pastors, and they've made it their own. We need buildings, then we need budgets, then we need tithing, then we need staff, then we need rules, then you need to conform, then we have the authority, then we invite you to leave, and finally, we don't even think you were ever saved. And the whole thing is just horrible. Um, people have become the prey and culture is the predator. And it is preying upon people uh, because some men have gotten together and said, this is how it should look today. Uh, may the Holy Spirit work on our hearts to bring about change, 
sooner or later, it's not going to come from the top down. It's going to come from the bottom up saying no more. And we'll see how that plays out in the years to come. And from that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Only two passages to consider tonight from Titus. Talk about subjective Christianity. The first one is, but has in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And I only use this passage to, to reiterate the point that the gospel is shared through preaching. The gospel is not shared through reading. It is shared through preaching and teaching of the word. It's shared when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel being shared. Why do you believe? And you give them a reasonable answer. It's not shared by our reading. It's shared by preaching. Now, we include the word when we're preaching, but I just wanted to point that out. He's manifested his word through preaching, is what it says. Secondly, Titus 3, 9 through 11 reminds us, those who realize that they are not saved by doctrine, but by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we are to, it says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic, he says, after the first and second admonition, warning, reject him, it says, knowing that he is that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Now, this is a really intriguing passage in addition to its insights about not striving about matters and the law and all this fighting and stuff. But when Paul writes, a man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. Now, he was talking to people there in the early church, but listen closely. The word heretic is now commonly applied to someone who apparently holds a fundamental error in doctrine relative to orthodoxy. Orthodoxy says this, a person who says, I disagree with that. Today, we say they're a heretic. Uh, Paul was called a heretic, by the way, by the Jews. Jesus, I'm sure, was called a heretic. Uh, however, the Greek word used here, hereticos, occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And it corresponds to the noun heresis. And uh, which occurs five places in the New Testament, and it refers to a sect, S-E-C-T. Why? The best definition of the word of heretic, translated heretic from heresis and hereticos, is a person who promotes a sect or a separate party from the common group. Um, it's a person who makes divisions in the church instead of promoting unity in the church. We tend to think of it as a single doctrine, but it's when a group of people or a person takes a single doctrine and says, no, we will be separate from each other according to this doctrine. In other words, a person who takes some form of doctrine or custom or religious right and forms a group on it is the truest definition of a heretic, not someone who merely holds different doctrinal points of view from orthodoxy. So you could have somebody sitting in a church and they don't believe in the Trinity and they don't believe in eternal punishment and they think that the second coming has happened. And as long as they're sitting there and they're just going along and they believe that personally, but they still are there in the church, they're not a heretic. 
They would be a heretic if they said, we need to break off from the body and start uh, only teaching that the Trinity is not true and only teaching that Jesus and all this stuff. You see the difference? Uh, this is what Paul was speaking of in Romans 16, 17, when he says, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have received and avoid them. He's talking about their heresis is mentioned there. It means those people who are trying to split up the group. Now, in the classic biblical sense of the word, I'm not a heretic. I believe in including everybody and letting everybody sit and enjoy whatever way they are interpreting the scripture. It's not up to private interpretation according to scripture, but we read it and people make their own choices. But I'm called a heretic because I have different views on certain things. Very interesting. Uh, let everybody go by the dictates of their own conscience and don't divide. Don't break it up. Let's unify and we will avoid the, the claim of heresy. Let, with that, we're going to have a word of prayer tonight offered by Brother Rick. Father in heaven, we come before you this night. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to you and as uh, those that are here and that uh, will be watching online uh, are seekers of truth we pray that your spirit would touch us would lead us to your truth and help us to um, discern those things that you would want us to know Lord we're grateful for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his life his sacrifice and his mission in our behalf and uh, give me thanks for that Lord we pray that uh, you bless um, Bless us this night. Bless all those, that, again, that are watching, that you would lead and guide and direct them. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Brother Rick. All right, here we go. Round two in the Mormon Christian debate with round one being our programs produced from 2006 to 2012, available at hotm.tv. Instead of repeatedly hitting on Mormonism, I'm going to try and present somewhat of a higher hierarchy an order of topics that come out in a chronological study of Mormonism. Um, so uh, let me give you an example. Mormonism today paints a picture to most people, the missionaries do, that everything began with Joseph Smith having a first vision. That's where it's typically played out. Uh, so we'll take them at their word, assume everything started with the first vision, and we're going to then discuss the topics of that first vision that relate to Christianity and Mormonism, which would be the makeup of God, the ontology of God, the makeup of God, and or the need for uh, restoration or church. So we're going to start with the makeup of God. And uh, in doing that, we're going to lay out what the Christian churches surrounding young Joseph Smith were teaching at the time, what Smith originally taught relative to the ontology of God, and then ultimately what he taught as he neared the end of his life. And we're just gonna kind of move through that. Now, the reasons I wanna approach round two this way is because I think we'll be able to see a few common threads between Christianity today and what Joseph Smith's early attempts to do were. I think it's pretty clear. Um, we will also see Christianity by the time it reached the ears of Joseph Smith was not offering a consistent story uh, where everybody was agreed upon. And we will also see that Smith's original responses to Christianity were not so far off, as I said, from the Christian beliefs today. Finally, we will, in most cases, show how far 
from our perspective, biblically, Smith uh, drifted from where he started. Uh, nevertheless, some of those places where we say he really drifted, he was actually teaching some things that we could embrace readily and probably should. So in approaching things this way, I'm convinced that we can help the LDS people today with a reasonable biblical way of accepting some of their doctrines of faith uh, while showing them that other points are absolutely untenable uh, when it comes to what uh, biblical Christianity is about. So taking all this, we have to begin with this topic of God. It's not a small endeavor, the makeup of God, but we'll start at the time when LDS claimed Joseph Smith had his first vision, which claims to be summarized as an event where Joseph says, this is how they say it today, he saw a heavenly father with a body of flesh and bone with Jesus Christ standing next to him in the air. Um, Christians essentially promoted the ontology of God in three ways. And they still pretty much do today. I would say they're Christians, but certain Christians would say there's only one way to describe God. They were either Trinitarian or they were Unitarian or they were some form of a modalist. Now, over the course of 1,700 years of Catholicism, endorsing and promoting Trinitarianism, and then another 300 years of the Protestant Reformation affirming that stance of Trinitarianism, uh, the Trinitarians ruled supreme. They still do, despite the fact that very few lay people could explain it, let alone the clergy. Uh, this failure was met with defensive comments by Trinitarians like, if a man could understand the eternal God, he would not be any kind of God worthy of worship. That's how they justify the, the craziness of some of the postulations of Trinitarian. Or as Leo Tolstoy said, uh, I, we may say with our lips that God is one and also three, but no one can believe it. The words make no sense. <laughs> That's, I mean, so uh, we can say it, we can repeat it, and we can even believe it somehow, but the words do not make sense. And of course, the justification is if you can make sense of it, then he's not a God you should be worshiping. Trinitarianism says that though there are three persons in the Godhead, these persons comprise one God or one divine substance. Remember that, persons and substance. The Athanasius Creed puts it this way. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For the persons of the Father is one, of the Son another, and of the Holy Spirit another. For the person of the Father is one, and of the Son another, and of the Holy Spirit another. It repeats itself. But the divinity of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit is one. Desiring to maintain allegiance to this definition, Trinitarians are often guilty of maniacally enforcing its creedal tenets, blind to the fact that no matter how hard they try, the definitional presentation is really difficult to comprehend. Now, Professor Harrell, who I pull a lot of information from in his book, points this out. He says, Orthodox Trinitarianism, quote, walks a fine line between modal Trinitarianism, modalism, on the one side, which is a belief in one God manifest in three modes or offices, not strictly persons, and tritheism on the other, which is a belief in three persons who are three gods. That is a very good definition of what Trinitarianism really is. It borderlines between modalism 
and uh, uh, tritheism, you know? He adds, according to Trinitarians, modalism commits the error of confounding the persons, while tritheism errs by dividing the substance. Now, at this point, I publicly admit that I am a committed modalist, uh, but refuse the Trinitarians' pejorative claims that I err by confounding the persons. Uh, as a modalist, I am a believer in the trinity um, of representations of only one God. I believe God has represented himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in a trinity. I believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I believe they are one God, and I discount the idea of three persons. That's where I differ, and that's where people get on my case for not being a true creedal trinitarianism, tr creedal trinitarianist who says there are three persons. And I would reply that they err by creating three persons deserving worship. I, I think that's an error. And um, rather than one true and living God deserving worship alone in whatever form he's in. So in Smith's life, modalism was a popular alternative to Trinitarianism, but the differences are not easily observed by Christians then or today. I can't tell you how many people I talk to, if you sit down with a Christian, I'm a Trinitarian, I'm a Trinitarian, you say, let me hear what, how you describe what it, being a Trinitarian means. And they almost always, almost always, in, if, unless they've been really informed, will describe the modalist view, almost every time. God with us, God's Spirit fully in Christ, God's Spirit uh, when uh, day of Pentecost, the Father being God, they almost always are modalists in their thinking and not creedal Trinitarianists. So uh, the main differences between modalists and Trinitarians is Trinitarians label Father, Son, Holy Spirit persons, and the modalists label them expressions or manifestations of the one God. That's the big difference between the two. In reality, modalists do not deny three in one. They simply don't see the three as separate individuals entirely separate from each other. And I've pointed this out. I have trouble knowing who to worship more or who to love more in the Trinitarian view. Do I love Jesus more than the Father? It's hard for me to love all three equally. It's just like three women. I mean, you're going to like one more than the other. So it's difficult. So it's really hard for me to understand God and say, I adore and worship three separate persons. And to me, that's a form of polytheism, but could be wrong. Also, there are differences between modalism. And we've talked about this before, but quickly. Sabellianist modalism says the Father became the Son, and then the Son became the Holy Spirit. That's called Sabellianist modalism where just plain modalism says God represents himself as the Son and represents himself as the Holy Spirit. All are God, God, God in heaven, God representing himself in flesh, God representing himself in spirit. So uh, those are the differences in modalism. Besides the fact that Trinitarianism has been endorsed by powerful institutions and their defenders throughout most of Christian hi history, there are some other reasons why it reigns in the minds and hearts of Catholics and Protestants today. One, people echo what they're taught without challenging or thinking about it. And uh, this is possibly the greatest reason. Secondly, the concept is so rarely understood that misinformation is allowed 
to profligate among believers because no one can really correct anybody because no one really knows how to correct them. And then finally, the relentless offensive Trinitarians, ardent Trinitarians make on anyone who challenges the concept so badly that they, they actually question your faith. They question whether you are a Christian. They question whether you are a brother if you say, I don't understand it, but I understand the modalist view better. In any case, Joseph Smith's day, there were ardent Trinitarians, ardent modalists, most typically of the Sabellianist type, and then there were Unitarians. And like modalism, Unitarianism has a number of different flavors. And the most common being the stance that says, there's one God, he created Jesus, therefore Jesus is not God, has not eternally existed, co-equal with God, is presently inferior to God and separate from God. But the Unitarian view almost always holds that Jesus was not God. When people say you're a modalist today, they often in, uh, uh, believe that you don't believe Jesus was God. That's not true, at least not in my case. So uh, don't mix those up. Now, from our egocentric views and, and, uh, and, and, and our tendency to believe that the whole world should think like we do, it's hard for us to imagine, if we're a Trinitarian, let's say, how anyone on earth could be a, a Unitarian or how anyone on earth could be a modalist. And if we're a modalist, we have hard time appreciating a Trinitarian. And so we come to 1815. Why 1815? Joseph Smith in 1815 would have been about 10 years old. All around him there was division over religion, including our topic tonight. His family, like we said last week, was divided on the topic of religion as well as a number of different issues going on. It's no wonder that young Smith, inculcated by the traditions of the Christian faith of his day, would initially adopt the very traditional views of God or the Godhead that were surrounding him. The Book of Mormon, which perhaps reflects Smith's earliest views, speaks clearly in Trinitarian terms. Second uh, Nephi 31:21, Messiah 15:45. Mormon 7.7, 7. I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't look these up, I forgot. Those all are Trinitarian in their nature. I mean, pure, straight up, okay? The testimony of the three witnesses includes this. And the honor be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, which is one God. I, uh, Trinitarians, perfect. Doctrine and Covenants 20.28, composed in the early days of the Mormon Church, says Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God. End quote. So we know that from the onset of Smith looking around and saying, okay, we're going to restore the church. We're going to start off and Trinitarianism is the deal. But what's really intriguing and also quite revealing about the uncommitted mind of Smith to these doctrines is that the Book of Mormon also contains great modalist language. In fact, it contains Sabellianist modalist language to boot. For example, in the Book of Mormon, a character named Abinadi calls the Son the very eternal Father. That's in Mosiah 16.15. And again in Mosiah 15.4, Smith has Abinadi say, The Father and Son are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. You know, and that is just classic. The Father and Son are one, both of the same together. And yet another Book of Mormon situation found in Alma 38, there's an evil character, his name is Zeezrom, and he asks the righteous Amulek, 
Is the Son of God the very eternal Father? Remember, Sabellianist modalism says the Father became the Son. Remember that? Okay. Is the Son of God the very eternal Father? And Amulek replies, Yea, He is the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth and of all things which in them are. So this is absolutely modalist verbiage and, and what Trinitarians would consider a confusion of persons. So I would simply suggest that it was a confusion of the author on the makeup of God at this time in his life. What makes the Book of Mormon passages, whether they're Trinitarian or modalist in nature, really confusing is that according to LDS official history, as told by the missionaries today, all the confusion on the makeup of God was solved, solved, when Joseph Smith supposedly had a vision of them in 1820. Book of Mormon wasn't published till 1830. So the problem is one of an anachronism. Smith says in a revisionist history, I had a vision in 1820 and God the Father in a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's was standing above me in the air saying, here my son standing on his right hand side. And yet later his Book of Mormon, which was translated 10 years later, published 10 years later, gives us Trinitarian and modalist views. The Book of Mormon would come out so much later and yet it gives us this. So what gives? We have a couple of choices. Giving Smith and the official LDS history the benefit of the doubt, we might say that, that Smith had his first vision in 1820, obtained the gold plates, had them for some six and a half, seven years, then merely translated what they said without imputing his knowledge of God into the account, which would suggest that maybe the Book of Mormon writers were unclear as to the nature of God, but Smith was true to his translation duties and didn't alter what they had to say. We can say that. Or we might suggest that Smith had his vision in 1820, saw God the Father and Jesus Christ as separate and distinct physical beings, but forgot what he saw and translated the information from the plates as fact into the book. Or maybe, and all the evidence points toward the first vision happening when the official church history says uh, it did. It doesn't, all the official history shows that it didn't happen when they say it did. But maybe Smith first, trans, first translated or wrote the Book of Mormon. And then after the fact, seeing that his ideas were changing, had to create a first vision to support his changing ideas on what the God had looked like or what the ontology of God was. In light of all the evidence, the anachronistic history of the first vision, the contradictory first vision versions that were gradually given after the supposed fact, and the absolute dearth of reports in any newspaper or any journal of any LDS people or people around Smith that reported any kind of first vision during those years, it seems the last possibility is the case that Joseph Smith, the real Mormonism, began with the publication of the Book of Mormon. And later on in his life, he started inserting this first vision story that was supporting his views of what the makeup of God was and which ultimately contradict what the Book of Mormon has to say. So we'll continue on from this point next week and we're gonna continue on talking about the ontology of God with Joseph Smith's idea that the Father is a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's and the Son also, and then their idea on the Holy Spirit, so we can see how it fits in with these subjects. 
We are going to uh, open up the phone lines. Hey, it's gone. 801, uh, 590-8413. 801-590-8413. And while the operators are clearing your calls, we're going to take a short minute to look at this. Come back. Jesus was born, and his birth was celebrated. And he grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. And then his time had come. Revival. Miracles, praise from the masses. But soon, those same masses turned and walked no more with him. And Jesus, in truth, suffered alone. He was mocked, denied, forsaken. He was killed on a cross like a criminal outside the city gates where the masses thrived. As sold out followers of him, how could we in our lives expect anything different? Okay, we have an off-air question. Hi, Sean. Wondering how you define how the Holy Spirit works in our lives today compared to the early church up until 70 AD. Do we possess the Spirit like them or is it different now? I would say that we possess the Spirit like them and it's different now and this is why. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit and so God doesn't change. So it's always the Holy Spirit's going to be the same. But I think that the Holy Spirit leading them at that time was leading them according to their situation. Of course, he was leading them to holiness and holy living and, and all, the, all those things. But I doubt the Holy Spirit was saying to the people in 70 AD, you know, don't, uh, get, uh, don't start turning on internet porn and, and, or whatever it is, you know. So I think the Holy Spirit works according to the zeitgeist of the age and, uh, and the Holy Spirit works on us in the same way, moving us to similar things, but it's a different circumstance. So it has to be working on us differently as well. Uh, Jason, and Owens, uh, Jason in Ontario, Canada is on line one. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, um, I like a comment and a question. Um, the comment kind of being um, like uh, my pastor was, had brought up briefly, like it was more of a passing comment on Sunday about Trinity and stuff like that. And then I watched this episode, and I kind of melded the two together a little bit. But um, basically, I think, now this is just a personal view of it, but I think part of the reason that um, the quote-unquote mainstream Trinitarians get so aggressive towards people that don't believe in the, um, in the mainstream definition of Trinitarianism is because of there being, you know, multiple cults out there that... Um, 
when they say they don't believe in the Trinity, they really mean that they're taking away the divinity of Christ, in a sense. I see. So as soon, so as, soon as, you know, if you say, oh, I don't believe in the Trinity, they're like, well, you don't believe that Christ is who he says he was, and rah, 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 and his and everything else. And, right. You know, and they make that connection. So that's possible. No. Granted, like I said, this is just a personal whatever. I don't know if that's always the case, but that's possibly why. Jason, I think so, you make so a great Harry, point. I think you make a great point because almost everybody today, if you say, I really have trouble with the Trinity, I don't think I, if you say I don't really agree with it, they will say, you don't believe Jesus was God. And you are absolutely right. They jump to that conclusion. And that doesn't need to be part of the uh, argument at all. Yeah, and my question is, um, you know, I've, I've studied Mormonism on and off and whatever, and I just want to ask you, because, you know, being from Mormonism, um, yourself, um, did Mormons at some point, like, and, you know, starting from Joseph Smith onwards, did they believe in some form of Unitarianism, modalism, or a mix of the two? Kind of, I was all, I've always been kind of confused on that. They've kind of, uh, the founder uh, kind of believed in all of them at some point in time, but ultimately came to what we would call henotheism, which is uh, we have one God uh, but he, uh, that we have to deal with, but he has a father who has a, who has a father who has a father in eternal regression yeah, of God. Yeah. yeah, I remember that, yeah. yeah. It was just... But because, so they, that's yeah. what they embraced today because that was kind of the final teachings that he had on, on the whole deal. Had he continued yeah. to live, who knows what they would have come up with. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Actually, and one last quick little comment before I head off. It's actually really interesting that um, you brought up the Trinity tonight because, well, I haven't been watching your show the last, I don't know, month and a half, two months because I've been busy. But I've been kind of throwing this Trinity thing around in my head. And I do recall you saying and reading elsewhere that you, you know, weren't really, you know, you didn't really hold the traditional Trinity belief. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you about, like, well, you know, define what you kind of, what you believe in it. But then you went and kind of answered that tonight. So that kind of threw that question at the window. So. All right. <laughs> so. Hey, thanks so much, Jason. Really appreciate you watching. And your call. You okay? Yeah, I just coughed. Sorry. Okay, brother. Talk to you later. Listen, uh, I got, uh, we're going to show you a, a clip, and I'm going to, Seth and, and, and Merle and Delaney, they're going to stop the clip because I want to talk to you about this, and we'll wrap up the show with this, showing this clip that I was. Uh, that I saw today. I wanted to ask you because you mentioned that the, there's about four or five other ministries like yours in Utah and uh, Heart of the Matter is one of the ones I happen to know and I actually saw you in a clip on YouTube with um, um, what's his name again? <laughs> Sean. Sean McCraney. Yeah, that's Sean McCraney uh, of Heart of the Matter. So you were telling me that Sean is kind of like drifting away from his his faith or something? Well, What's well, going on? Well, sadly, Sean never really submitted himself 
into some good discipleship when he came out of the Mormon church several years ago. And unfortunately, in, in recent years, he's kind of gone off into some doctrinal errors that many have tried to help correct, but unfortunately, Sean hasn't been very receptive to it. Stop. Um, this is not to say that... Okay. Uh, this is uh, Bill McKeever. He's a brother in Christ. He's a, a LDS apologist, and, uh, and he knows his stuff, and he, lives here, he works and lives here in Utah. And I just want to set the record straight. This is how it went down. In 2005, I moved here. I had written a book called Born Again, Mor Born Again Mormon. And before I did step foot into the state, before we ever did one show, uh, the pastors and the apologists in the state were against us. They hated the title Born Again Mormon. And for that purpose, we started off with a mark against us. One of the biggest uh, anti-Mormons, Ed Decker, actually publicly put on, the, on his website, do not financially support Sean McCraney. A pastor in the state, one of the largest uh, churches in the state, called uh, Calvary Chapel where I was going to school and said, do not let this guy come to our state. The manager of TV20 and I went up and down the Wasatch Front holding breakfasts. And we told the pastors what we were doing. And the response was horrible. So um, what Brother McKeever is saying here is that I refused to submit myself. If I had submitted myself to the ideas of these men, we wouldn't have had born-again Mormon. We wouldn't have had heart of the matter going the way it was. We would have had wood paneling, and we would have had a fake fern, and we would have had me in a white shirt and tie, and we would have had low-power television going on. And that is what they want. They want groupthink, and they wanted me to come, and they, they literally wanted me to come and say, please counsel me on how to go about doing this. And when I saw that their ideas sucked, I said, I'm, I'm not going to gain anything from from uh, submitting myself to them. Secondly, um, uh, he said many have tried to reach Sean, and it's it's comical. I know two pastors who have talked to me about Trinitarianism. The rest of them uh, turned on me publicly and and uh, criticized me without hearing the facts about my thoughts. One was a guy who flew out here from back east. And what was his name? Rob. Rob Bowman. He actually flew out here to talk to me. That was grateful. I don't agree with him, but he actually flew out here. And the other one is no longer a pastor anymore, and I can't remember his name, but he came and he sat down with me and we talked. And he saw my points of view. So the many who have tried to reach out, uh, that is a, that's an that's a, a overestimation at best. Okay, continue. Um. This is not to say that Sean, for many years with his television show, did was influential in bringing a lot of people out of the Mormon church. I used to come across people all the time that were influenced by Sean. But sadly, uh, doctrinally, he's kind of gone off the deep end on some issues and that are concerning to many of us here. 
as Christians in this community. And we tried to talk to him and offered to talk to him privately about some of these things. And for the most part, he's just uh, refused to, to do so, at least with me personally and others that I know. Okay, stop. And he okay, when we say that someone's gone off the deep end, that's all you need to say in the body of Christ. To It's, it's a thought-killing cliche. And cults use that terminology, actually. Uh, what, a thought-killing cliche in Mormonism is that important to your salvation. It's a thought-killing cliche. No, it's not important to my salvation. I'll stop talking about it. When Christians say of another brother, he's gone off the deep end, that is an automatic excommunication from the body of believers in that, in that area that he or she lives. And it's wrong. Because we are supposed to uh, seek, and we are supposed to go deep. There, uh, Hebrews 6 tells us plainly, get away from the fundamentals of faith and repentance and baptism and get it deeper. So to say I've gone off the deep end is unfair. Now, I realize that my views are not within the scope of orthodoxy, and Bill is saying there's some concern among the Christians. I get that. To come and take me privately, just not so. Continue. And you happen to know him uh, from years. Uh, and he's, yeah, he's kind I, I of... met Sean when he first came up to Utah many years ago and, uh, and you know, heard what his plan was and what he was trying to do. Um, I, I had, quite honestly, some concerns back then about Stop. some of his ideas. When Bill McKeever was at one of those breakfast uh, meetings, I told him, this is, this is how I see it. A, a Latter-day Saint can be a born-again Christian and still be a Latter-day Saint. Our job is to let the Holy Spirit guide them. Uh, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's true. You know, and those were his concerns when he met me at the breakfast meeting. That's the only time we ever sat down and talked. It was in 2006. And the response I got from him is, eh, I am a living uh, testament that you can be a Christian and a Latter-day Saint at the same time. And I was for four years thereafter. And the other thing about it is, uh, while Bill, he didn't really see any value in our approach, I am not saying we did this. I am saying God did it. But we have seen tens of thousands of people either exit Mormonism and double that, not go into Mormonism because of our approach. So I just want to, I just want to give a response to what uh, he publicly went and did on this show. Continue ideas. Uh, I tried very patiently to maybe offer some advice, you know, as someone who's been in the ministry for quite a few years. Um, he, he didn't really want that advice, and so I just kind of backed off and, okay, fine. Okay, stop. Uh, I w the whole thing is I didn't take his advice, and he had a thorn in his side for me ever since. Backed off is, is, is a different word because really there's been an ostracization of the ministry from this group from the uh, get-go. And I, I just find it appalling that this Christian talk show host who had Bill on would not contact me for a rebuttal, not ask anything, but just take Bill's word for this and let it go out there. Because that's what we do. We shoot, we make sure they're down, bleeding, and then we walk up and we start asking the questions. That's how they do it in the Christian church, and it's wrong. Continue. The clip that you probably saw was 
I think it's his 300th show, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the only time I've ever been on his show. I, I was never invited on any other program that he had. But I was on that show, and I decided to, to just go and you know lend a little bit of support. But it was after that that he really started going off on some kind of strange ideas. It wasn't at that time. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what he's those ideas that you're talking about? Well, he's certainly denied the Trinity. He no longer believes in the Trinity, if you ever believed in it, I don't even know. But mm -hmm. he also holds to a, a strange idea regarding the hereafter and the judgment of God. He doesn't believe in a literal hell any longer. He kind of believes in more like a Rob Bell type of eternity. Scott, hey, yeah. I have never said that. I have, I, in fact, I made it clear I don't embrace Rob Bell's there is none. I, I believe in the biblical interpretation. All I said, using scripture, is that hell gives up its dead, and it does, that's scriptural, and that the uh, lake of fire is in the presence of God and his holy angels. And, and, and now, I am not backing off. I certainly do not believe in eternal punishment. I do not believe that at all. And I believe that I could support it through scripture, and I think we have given as good of uh, an apologist response to that as anyone who believes it's forever. So, uh, but does that make me not a Christian? I certainly don't, I've certainly rejected the Trinitarian view. I've rejected tre creedal Trinitarianism, but Bill doesn't say Sean still believes in, in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Sean believes that Jesus is God. Sean believes that Jesus is the only way. Sean believes that there's no other way to heaven but by faith uh, through him and not of any works, lest any man should boast. Sean does not believe in legalism. I mean, he could, Sean believes in grace. Sean believes in one God. He could say all kinds of positive things, but instead, because I simply say I'm not sure, I really don't believe Scripture supports the idea of eternal punishment. I don't believe that the Scripture supports Trinity. I don't believe the Scripture supports contextually the second coming of Jesus Christ being future. Those things they have taken, and look, at, I'm not doing it for me. We continue to go. I'm doing it for everybody else they do this to. Because this is the thing. If you don't conform to their ways, they cast you out as a brother or sister. And people who love God and love Jesus Christ are deemed not believers. They are deemed deep in people. They're deemed not to be trusted. They've legitimized the entire ministry through this approach, but it hasn't stopped us. It's not going to stop us. But I just wish that we could stop doing this to each other. That we could just say, look, you're a Trinitarian, okay. You believe in Jesus Christ? I mean, could we just do this? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Do you believe that he's the way you get to God? Yes, I do. You believe in his shed blood? Yes, I do. You believe in you're saved by grace? Yes, I do. You believe there's any other way? No, I don't. You believe in one God? Yes, I do. Well, carry on, brother. No, not in this day and age, not anymore. We're going to stop showing that uh, thing. It goes on a little bit longer, uh, but I'm just showing the disappointment that I have. Uh, I know Bill means well, and I know he's reached people, a lot of people in Mormonism with the truth, but again, I don't see the love. I don't see the acceptance uh, for each other and our different views and our different ways. And if we don't have that, I don't think we have anything. Why would anybody leave the Mormon church where they're surrounded by cultural halls and volleyball teams and, 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 and great social things and a lot of love in there, a lot of crazy doctrine, but a lot of love to come into this. 
so they can conform and then be cast out again because they don't conform to your way of thinking. It's a shame. It's really a shame. And it just gets tiresome. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will be with us and help us to love each other more and to drop these walls so that we can open ourselves up and receive people who think differently and see differently and believe differently, but do love the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel.